Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hey, everybody. It's uh, Chris again with another episode of Super Theism. And uh, I was at work today listening to a podcast by uh, Bruce Gorman, who's been on Dave's call before. I'm actually, I actually forgot the name of his podcast. I'm looking it up right now just so I can uh, name drop it for you guys. It's called uh, Be Still and Know That Yahweh is God. And uh, I've listened to and followed his podcast for some time now. Um, I generally agree with a lot of stuff he says, but he has this one guy on a lot. Uh, his name's uh, Paul Burnham. He's this older gentleman. Um, I'm not going to question his uh, his uh, intellect or his uh, wisdom or anything, because he's definitely, uh, he's my elder, and uh, you know, he's been around the block, it sounds like, a bunch of times. But um, there's one thing he said that caused me some concern when I was listening to uh, Bruce's latest podcast where he had him on today. He said that Yahweh did not um, want animal sacrifice in the Bible. And um, I would have to utterly disagree with that. Um, I don't know how you would work that or exegete that with the Bible um, in a coherent way. Um, and I think I know why he made a statement like that, because this guy is a he's a prof- professing vegan. And uh, I know that he's operating off of his veganism, and he's interpreting the Bible through that lens. So I think he's performing a little bit of eisegesis as opposed to exegesis. He's reading his uh, his veganism into the Bible as opposed to deducing or deriving things out of the Bible. You know, he's he's starting with an assumption and then reading that assumption into the Bible, you know, how he um, interprets the Bible. So it's a circular way of interpretation. He's begging the question. He's assuming his own point to be proved. Um, It's very ad hoc. But I think I know, and I can relate to him, too, because uh, when I, I used to be a Gnostic, as I've said on this call before, I was a Valentinian Gnostic for like six months. I mean, I was, like, deep into Valentinian Gnosticism. Um, and I would, I would, I basically interpreted the Bible like that as well. Like, I'd be like, well, how, how could, how could God, you know, how could he command animal sacrifice? It just, it just, you know, it didn't sit right with me, you know, because I was operating off of this false, epistemology where I was assuming my morality was higher than God's, basically. I was assuming that I was the center and the arbiter of what is of what was moral, you know, of morality, you know. Um, 
and that's kind of how, what you have to do to uh, make statements like that and to uh, interpret the Bible in that way. Um, you kind of have to presume that you're operating in this moral vacuum and that you're you're the center of uh, morality and that you are the you know you are, you're the arbiter of what's moral and what's not moral. You know, but. <clears throat> Some passages that I think he might be referring to in order to quote unquote support this, and these are passages that I used to point to when I was a Gnostic, are like, for instance, um, Jeremiah 7:22. Well, actually, it starts at uh, Jeremiah 7:21. It says, "Thus says the Lord of Hosts, or you know Yahweh uh, Sabaoth." the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. And it goes on. Um... I used to, how I used to interpret this as a Gnostic is I used to think that, uh, I, well, I used to think that Yahweh was the Demiurge, so I thought that basically there were like two gods all throughout the Bible. There was the Demiurge who wanted, you know, this blood sacrifice, and he was this bloodthirsty, cruel, vindictive, capricious deity, you know, and then all these other verses where it kind of spoke of God as loving or like this one where it's, he seems to say that he didn't want or he never wanted animal sacrifice. You know, I was like, well, that that's the good God. That's the that's the true God in the Pleroma behind the Demiurge, you know. That's how I would interpret all this stuff. Uh, yeah, it's, just, it's just totally ad hoc and arbitrary, you know. It's like cherry picking. You just... You know, again, you eisegete, you just read into whatever verse you want to, you basically, you want it to say, you know, to, to fit your your pre your preconceptions, you know what I mean, your your presupposed worldview or your assumptions. Um, and that's exactly what I did. But, uh, and there's several other verses like this, for instance, uh, Psalm 46, where it says, um, uh, let's get to a good translation. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Um, there's a lot more. Uh, <laughs> Hebrews 10.6, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you took no delight. Um, 1 Samuel 15:22 Samuel said, "Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams." Um, Psalm 51:16 For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Um Isaiah 111, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Um, you know, you see? You see the trend here? <laughs> um, 
But basically, and kind of comparing all those verses, you kind of saw what, you know, Yahweh's really saying. He's he's not, he, Yahweh's not contradicting himself. There's no way he's saying, I never intended or I never commanded or never wanted animal sacrifice, because there's all these other verses where Yahweh explicitly commands and wants animal sacrifice. See that? There's no way that that can be, that can mean, you know, there's no way that it could mean that. I mean, there's no way that interpretation could be correct. Unless you're, again, you're starting off from this, you know, false assumption and then reading that into the text and making these verses fit that false assumption that you're beginning with, you know. And you kind of... uh pick and choose which verses and arbitrarily, you know, interpret them to fit that preconceived assumption, you know. But if if you're if you want to be consistent and you want to exegete the text, then that can't be that can't be the meaning of these verses because they're it's contradicted by so many other verses. That can't be the correct interpretation. Can't be what these mean. Basically, it it tells you what what he's actually saying, if you investigate the, the whole context of all these verses, Yahweh's not saying, I never commanded or never wanted animal sacrifice. He was rebuking and chastising the Israelites because of their hypocrisy. That's what he was rebuking them for, because basically, animal sacrifice in the Bible, it was just an outward sign of something, kind of like circumcision. Kind of how circumcision, you know, of the of the flesh was an outward sign of the covenant of obedience to the covenant of uh oh, what's the word? Um, conversion to the covenant, you know, obedience. It was a sign of loyalty, you know, that you, you know, it was the outward sign that you were gonna obey Yahweh. You know, you circ- you got circumcised. You were gonna be devoted to him and obey him and submit to him. This is the same thing with animal sacrifice. It was an outward sign of an inward condition of your your heart, you know, that you were you know, you were wanting to obey. You were wanting to be loyal to Yahweh, you know, and obey him and submit to him. And the problem is is all the Israelites, if you investigate the full context of these verses where he's saying Yahweh's saying things like this, he's rebuking them because the Israelites were breaking all of his commandments, yet they were still bringing all these animal sacrifices to them because they thought that the animal sacrifices would cover, would basically save them, you know, even though they were breaking all of his commandments. You see that? So it was kind of, it was a hypocritical um, action. You know, it was a hypocritical uh, sacrifice. You see that? They thought that the sacrifices would cover them when they were... You know, they were serving other gods and breaking all of his commandments, and their their heart was somewhere else. You know, they had a divided mind, a divided heart. You know, they were they had their loyalties were elsewhere. Yet they thought, oh well, if I make this grand outward show and I still make all these sacrifices and bring all these sacrifices to Yahweh, then Yahweh will forgive me because he'll see the sacrifices. See that? So that's what Yahweh was doing. He was rebuking them for their hypocrisy. He was saying that. You know, it says throughout in another passage in the Bible that, you know, the blood of bulls and goats, it could never actually, you know, 
um, atone for sin. You know, it could never... It was just an outward sign of something. Okay? Um... So that was the that was what Yahweh is saying in these verses. He's rebuking the Israelites for their hypocrisy. They thought that the you know they thought that works could save them. They thought that the animal sacrifices could save them, even though they were breaking all of Yahweh's commandments. You know they were being hypocrites, and they weren't serving Him, and they were following other gods, and they didn't have circumcised hearts. You know their inward condition did not match their outward condition. Their outward you know. Their outside, their outward signs, you know, that they were offering, but the sat in the form of the sacrifice. But so I wrote some stuff on this as well, some old uh, journal, old old uh, things in my old notes in my journal. Um, I wrote here. I said, what blood sacrifice was or is or did in the Old Testament was to foreshadow or prefigure or be a type of Christ. The Bible says that only the shedding of blood can act for the remission of sins, and the price of sin is death, and that to break one part of the law or the Torah was to be guilty or condemned of all of it. This is because God is perfect, and so is his standard, and we are not. Okay? So this is a very important point. you got to understand, God is perfect, and so is his standard of justice, right? He's, he has a perfect standard of justice. You know, perfect justice. Um, thus, it makes perfect sense that if you, you know, if you break one part of his law, you're guilty of all of it, right? Because God demands perfection, because God's perfect, right? That's why it says in the New Testament, be perfect like my Father in Heaven is perfect, right? Christ said that. That's that's what he's saying, you know. God is perfect. His standard is perfect. His justice is perfect. So if you break one part of his law, you're guilty of all of it. You know, you you you, you don't measure up to him. See that? And that's why... Uh, you know, that's why I said elsewhere that the price of sin is death. You know, if if you break one part of his law, you're you're guilty of that that price. You're guilty of death. You know, you're um you're deserving of death before God. You know, because you failed to measure up to his perfect standard. He's perfectly just, right? Our God is perfectly just because he has a perfect uh, standard of justice. Um, and so, this basically explains, you know, animal sacrifice in the Bible, and the Bible teaches, you know, propitiation. It teaches uh, penal substitution or substitutionary atonement. Um or expiation, basically that, you know, God, he forgives you and he saves you by grace, but if if you break his commandments or if you sin, you know, he's still going to hold you accountable, right? So, in order to basically, 
you know, in order to reconcile that, in order to atone for that, you have to basically, if if you're not going to be put to death, you have to put something in place of yourself that will be put to death. You know, either either you have to be put to death or something or someone else has to be put to death in your place, right? So then they're, you know, they're, uh, you know, you will in, it will impute your guilt onto them and they'll be the propitiation for your, um, your, you know, your, uh, your sentence, your, uh, your guilt, your, your, uh, your sin. And thus their atonement will be imputed onto you. This is what the Bible teaches, you know, all throughout. This is why, you know, it teaches imputation of guilt and atonement, right? Because this is one of the fundamental flaws that people, you know, operate off of when they try to interpret the Bible or when they think today is they're operating off of this libertarian epistemology where they think that they're indiv- they're an individual sovereign. You know, they think that they're an individual. They think that they're totally autonomous and that they operate in this moral vacuum and that they're the, you know, that they're an individual and that, you know, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches, you know, a collective identity with a, under a federal head, an imputation of guilt within that collective identity. This is why, you know, we all died in Adam, right? Because Adam was our, was the representative of his whole progeny of all of his offspring. Right? He was the federal head of all of his offspring. Thus his sin was imputed, or the guilt of his sin was imputed onto all of his offspring. Right? They were all culpable for that. You know? Um, the imputation of guilt. And uh, it's the same thing. It was The reverse is the same with Christ. You know, we all live in Christ. You know, we were all saved in Christ because Christ was our federal head and we all had a collective identity in him as well and thus we were saved in him. You know, we live in him. You know, he, his righteousness was imputed onto us or his his atonement was imputed onto us. Okay? So, you know, this explains animal sacrifice or blood sacrifices because... Um, Again, you know, it's this, we're not individual sovereigns. You know, everything's all, everything's determinist. So if, you know, if you, if you uh, sin or if you break one of God's laws and you're guilty of death, either, you know, that's either going to be imputed onto you or you have to, that has to be imputed onto something else in your place for you to be uh, covered, you know, for you to be um for there to be propitiation for you, you know. And that's the, uh, it's called penal substitution or substitutionary atonement. Um, So, I said, because of God's perfect justice, thus he forgives us out of his grace, but we are still held accountable for, you know, all of our sins, every action, every time we break his law or his commandments. Hence the need for propitiation or penal substitution or substitutionary atonement and with the imputation of guilt and atonement. Um, 
So again, it said, you know, the price of sin is death, and the remission of sins, or the, or the shedding of blood is for the remission of sins, right? So if we sin, either we have to die or something has to die in our place, because God is perfectly just, right? He's got a perfect standard of justice. So he'll forgive us out of his mercy by imputing our guilt onto something else and then having that that something else take our place. That's the whole point. And then that, you know, the atonement of that will be imputed onto us. You see that? Out of God's grace, you know, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of propitiation or penal substitution or substitutionary atonement. That was the whole point of Christ. That's what Christ was. You know, he was our Passover lamb. He took all, he took our sins or our iniquities upon himself, and he uh, paid the price, you know, of our sin. He took our place, you know. He, uh, he paid what was deserving of us, you know. He paid the price of sin, which was death, right? And then his perfect righteousness was imputed onto us out of God's, you know the free the gift free gift of God's grace, you know, and His mercy and His love. Thus, His righteousness was His perfect righteousness was imputed onto us, and His blood was a covering for us, so then we could be justified, you know, before God. You know, we could be, um, you know, justified. Just that's the whole point of justification, right? Because uh, we couldn't be righteous in and of our of, of in and of our own selves because uh you know because of our sinful nature it prevented us from keeping God's law or from you know being righteous period <laughs> because our natural inclination is was towards sin right and it says uh, our heart was even you know at at enmity was at nat- was naturally at enmity and was naturally wicked and hostile against God and his spirit so there was nothing that we could do to justify ourselves. We couldn't be we couldn't justify ourselves out of our own righteousness. It was impossible. So that's why we need we needed Christ, his perfect righteousness to be imputed onto us, you know. So this is this explains, you know, animal sacrifice throughout the Bible, you know. So I said going back to my note I said, and in, in going back, I said, and that to break one part of the law or the Torah is to be guilty or condemned of it all. This is because God is perfect, and so is the standard of justice. We are not. We are finite and fallen beings worthy of death before a perfect God. So what Christ did, um, offering himself as the perfect oblation or sin offering by perfectly fulfilling the law or the Torah, was by his blood shed, freed us from our certificate of debt or the condemnation of the law, and thus allowed or enabled us to be saved and justified by grace through faith, and that only God can save us, and that by or by freely imputing our sin via grace or mercy. There is nothing we can do in and of ourselves on our end, but also faith without works is dead, so we are justified by faith, but saved through a faith with works to be sanctified, or obedient, and just as Christ, Abraham, David, Noah, etc. were. Okay, so... So, yeah, I think I uh, 
did a good job of kind of ex- explaining uh, animal sacrifice, the purpose of it, um, there just by myself. And another reason you could totally debunk how the claim that Yahweh, you know, never wanted animal sacrifices. I mean, just look at the very first instance in Genesis with Cain and Abel, you know. Yahweh rejected Cain's offering of, you know, just the fruit of the field, right? He wanted he wanted Abel's offering of an animal, right? A blood sacrifice, right? Because that is the only thing that could offer expiation, you know, for Abel's shortcomings, right? For his sin is the shedding of blood. Something had to die in his place. That's the point. Because God's um, justice is perfect. He's get his, you know, he's perfectly just. Um, he requires perfection. You know, his standard is perfect. So if you break one part of it, you're guilty of all of it, and the price, the price, or the 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 punishment is is death. You're deserving of death. So, out of his grace and his mercy, he does forgive you and he does save you, but um, he needs something to, you know, he needs something in your place for that for that sin or that guilt to be imputed onto, you know, in order to uh, um, justify you or to be, to act as a propiti- propitiation for you, right? Again, we see this all throughout the Old Testament as well. This is uh, God's standard of justice. You know, it's it's, um, it's penal substitution or substitutionary atonement. You know, that's why it's 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 reparatory. You know, it's it's perfectly fair too, right? That's why we see in the in the Old Testament, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You know. Um. And also, we see in, in the latter part of Ezekiel that uh, when the temple is restored after Israel is restored, and uh, we go back to the land of Israel after this exodus, um, the, the sacrifice, the, the system of animal sacrifice will be reinstored because the the Davidic prince figure there is gives sacrifice for his own sins, offers a sin offering for his own sin and for the people. So animal sacrifice is going to be in the future, reinstored. So there's no way that Yahweh does not want animal sacrifice. Like that's impossible. You know, there's no way that that can be true. That interpretation can be correct. Um, and I think it will be reinstored for the same purpose. You know, to as an outward sign of our obedience. You know, and our loyalty and our uh, submission to Yahweh, you know, that acknowledging that we fall short of his perfection, right, of his perfect standard, yet he, yet also acknowledging that he still requires perfect justice, you know, so something has to be offered in our place as propitiation for us, right? Because we're deserving of death, so something has to be put to death in our place. Perfectly fair, right? Perfectly just. Eye for an eye, and tooth for a tooth. So, because actually there's still going to be sin um, after the Exodus and after we go back to Israel and the temple's restored and everything, there's still going to be sin present. 
will still be able to sin. We will be given a new heart, as it says in, uh, I think, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, or Ezekiel and Isaiah, maybe. But it's when the new covenant is given um, after uh, Judah and Israel are reunited, and we go on this after we go on this exodus. Um, God's going to make the new covenant with us and give us a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. So I think that uh, our our natural inclination will be uh, replaced. It will basically, instead of having a natural inclination to do sin or to have a sinful nature, we'll, we'll instead have a natural incli- inclination to obey Yahweh and to do his law. But that doesn't mean we won't still be able to sin. It's just our natural inclination will not be towards sin anymore. See that? But we will still be able to sin and fall short because we're, we're not perfect still, you know. Still be able to make mistakes and mess up and thus still need uh, to offer propitiation for ourselves. So, um, and also, uh, even in the New Testament, uh, Paul offers an animal sacrifice after Christ ascended to heaven, after he resurrected and ascended. <laughs> he offered a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice in the temple. So, there's no way that Yahweh did not want sa- animal sacrifices. It's, it's impossible. You can't, you cannot make that work again. Like I said, unless you're begging the question, assuming your own point to be proved, arguing in a circle, affirming the consequence interpreting these passages, cherry-picking these passages and interpreting them in an arbitrary way to fit your you know, your preconceived paradigm, which you're operating off of, your presupposed worldview, your, uh, your assumptions, so, and making the passages fit those assumptions, you know. You're isogeting, you're reading into the text as opposed to reading out of it, you know. Um, <clears throat> you know, people will say, too, well, uh, it's like this. I just, I just ask like this now rhetorically. <clears throat> um, does the creator not have a right to kill his own creations? I mean, this is this is like the thought process of you know these libertarian people today, or just people today in general. This is what they, this is the kind of juvenile thinking they have. They actually think that they think that way. You know, I mean, does the creator not have the right to kill his own creations? Of course he does. That's so asinine. Hopefully, it sounds as asinine as it as as it should because it is. You know. Creator can do whatever he wants with his creations. If he wants to kill some of them, he can do that. He's perfectly justified. You know, by what standard would you appeal to to say he's unjust in doing that? You know, you have none except your own arbitrary, baseless emotions. You know what I mean, he is the standard of justice. He is the standard of what is right and what's not right, of what is moral and what's not moral. You'd have to appeal to his standard just to accuse him of being unjust or immoral. You know what I mean? So you, you, you defeat yourself. Because his, his standard of justice is the objective standard. His standard of morality is the objective standard. He defines what is moral and what is not moral. 
you can only define what is moral and not moral by his standard. See that? By the definitions that he gave. So you just argue against yourself when you try to argue these things. Um, and I know that's probably what this guy was doing because, like I said, he's a he's a vegan. He's, I know he's interpreting these passages through the filter of his veganism in order to, you know, um, co- confirm his veganism. He wants to read his veganism into the Bible. Be like, oh, the he's trying to claim the moral high ground position and virtue signal like all these vegans do. Like, oh, I, I just love animals so much, and I, I just couldn't imagine ever hurting an animal, so therefore the the God of all things, just he, he could never hurt an animal, or I just I couldn't imagine him ever hurting an animal because I, I can't imagine myself ever hurting an animal, you know? <laughs> it's just completely arbitrary and baseless, you know? as if the creator of all things couldn't or doesn't have the right to kill his own creatures or do do with his own creatures whatever he wants, you know. <laughs> it's just totally absurd and ridiculous, arbitrary, but... Um, which is also ironic because veganism is actually extremely destructive to the environment and definitely harms animals more than any kind of uh, meat-eating diet ever could, ever, because veganism relies on commercial agriculture, uh, annual monocrop a- agriculture, which is probably the number one thing destroying the earth today and all of its ecosystems. <laughs> it's just it's completely retarded. I mean, they, they just... And not only that, but uh, all the plants and stuff and everything that grows in your field... Where does it get all its nutrients from? It gets it from fertilizer. You know what fertilizer? You know what fertilizer comes from in nature? It comes from animals and animal products. Did you know that? Did you know that uh, for your soil and your uh, everything that grows out of your soil to be healthy and stuff, it requires the death of animals. Did you know that, vegans? You know how far removed from nature you are, vegans, when you argue these things. You know how stupid you make yourselves look? I hope so. <laughs> because if not, then that's I'm I'm concerned. I'm really worried for you. That's not good. All right. Well. So I got some more stuff I could read on this. Uh See, I'm going to get my Rotherham's Emphasized Bible out here, and I could read something on this. Um, this is on page 920 of my Rotherham's Emphasized Bible. It's in a section that's it's in an appendix section. It's in the appendix section of the Old Testament. And it's called, the section I'm going to be reading is called Propitiatory Covering. So it says, Instead of, quote, make atonement for, this translation has mostly, quote, put a propitiatory covering over, end quote. And this is undeniably a more adequate rendering of the original kipper, word kipper. The verb kipper is the intensive PL form of 
kafar, which by general consent means to cover. And though kippur is set apart to denote moral covering generally by sacrifice, yet it does not follow that the mental conception of covering is thereby lost. Indeed, the prevailing reference of this species of covering to persons as its object and the favorite construction of the verb with al, or quote, upon, and ba'ad, or quote, about, point clearly to the wisdom of preserving the more graphic rendering which has here been ventured and which preserves the striking idealism of the Hebrew. Speaking of the application of Kipper to various classes of offerings, the Oxford Yesenius, page 498, says, quote, Underlying all these offerings, there is the conception that the person's offering are covered by that which is regarded as sufficient and satisfactory by Yahweh, end quote. Although this thought may be held to abate something of its picturesqueness or picturesqueness when the action is regarded as taking effect on inanimate objects, such as the, quote, altar, the tent of meeting, etc., yet these merely derived applications can scarcely be taken to efface the deeper idealism where that aptly holds good. Kipper may easily be said to signify, quote, to atone, end quote, but the question arises, what is the radical Old Testament conception of atonement? Or the word in question may be held to denote forgiveness, but still the question is pertinent. Has this great atoning word nothing to say regarding the means by which forgiveness is secured? The more, the more must this question be pressed that in many instances, till it becomes the standing formula in the book of Leviticus, Forgiveness is spoken of as a sequel to the atoning act rather than that act itself. Oh, crap. I lost my place. Oh, there it is. The atoning lies behind the... Uh, behind the forgiving. Even where the verb to forgive would seem an apt rendering of the Hebrew kipper, it will generally be found that the more graphic translation which keeps up a filament of connection with the sacrificial means by which forgiveness is secured is to be preferred. The great gain of this rendering, however, most clearly comes in throughout those numerous cases in which there is an undeniable surrender of life for life. The sacrifice covers the sinner. How? By dying in his stead. One life covers another when one is surrendered and the other therefore spared. The blow must fall, for the wages of sin is death, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Exactly what I was talking about. But it falls on the substituted life. The dead covers the living. The living is ransomed or pardoned, set free. Such covering is essentially propitiatory covering substitution is of its essence. Any possible abuse of this fundamental Hebrew concept will be averted by doing careful and equal justice to the entire Levitical ritual. This is, again, this is what Christ did for us, right? And this is why in the New Testament it said, you know, it's, it's preferable that one man die so that many shall be saved, right? That's the whole concept. Propitiation. Um... 
the offerer consents to the substitution and by himself or his representative takes an essential part in the transfer of the penalty of the sin which he confesses. Man consents, God consents. The substitutionary death is granted by God. It is accepted by man. It is accepted under the solemn stipulation that the spared life shall be wholly consecrated to the holy and merciful God who brings near this costly salvation. One thing is wanting in the ritual, the consent of the substitute. Nay, a second thing is missing, adequacy of value in the substituted. Be it so. Then when a substitute shall appear who shall willingly bear the sin of the world and be worthy to bear it, and God consents and ordains, and man consents and accepts, then the whole ideal of propitiatory covering will be complete. It remains for the world and for the individual to carry the matter to its practical consummation. Okay. So I actually forgot to read a note here above, but uh, in reference to those verses again where Yahweh seems to claim that he never wanted sacrifice or any of that, I wrote a note addressing that here in my journal. I said, when it says in the Psalms and elsewhere that Yahweh does not desire burnt offerings or sacrifice, when he so clearly commanded them in many other passages, the statement is being made comparatively, i.e., he wants that inward or spiritual obedience to the moral laws rather than the outward form of ceremony, a.k.a. with a true heart. He wants the inward obedience with a true heart as opposed to just an outward show or an outward form of ceremony as if he did not give them um, uh, as if he did not give them wait hold on I'm confused seems to be that's where the sentence ends that's confusing let me reread this um I guess that's the end of the sentence. I don't know why I structured it like that. That's odd. <laughs> uh, hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, the statement is being made comparatively. He wants that inward obedience inward obedience to the moral laws rather than the outward form of ceremony as if he did not give them. Right. Again, it's like that one passage says, you know, uh, obedience is preferable to sacrifice. That's the whole point. God desires an inward repentance, you know, an inward circumcision of the heart, you know. He wants you to have, you know, he wants sincerity. He wants you to be, you know, he wants true faith, true obedience, true loyalty, through repentance. You know, you can't save yourself by your works. You can't just put on an outward show, you know, like this is the whole thing that the Pharisees were doing, right? They were, uh, inside they were, you know, sepulchers, but on the outside they were, you know, they looked really good to the world, right? They were polished sepulchers, right? That's because they were putting on this outward show as if the outward show, you know, justified them or made them righteous before God, but it didn't because they were hypocrites. 
the same thing that Yahweh was rebuking the Israelites of in the Old Testament. They were trying to put on this outward show and doing all the sacrifices and thinking that the sacrifices would save them or would make them righteous when that that wasn't the case, right? The sacrifices were an outward sign of an inward obedience and inward repentance. And if, if you're missing the inward repentance and the inward obedience, well, then the outward sign was... It's nullified. It's rendered moot. You know, it's, it's meaningless. It actually is, becomes repulsive to God. And there's actually a verse that uh, says that as well. Let's see if I can find it. Um, I might have to Google it, but it basically says exactly what I just said, but better. Hold on here. I'm looking for it. Yeah, here it is, Proverbs 15.8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. See that? That's the whole point and purpose of what these passages are referring to when Yahweh's rebuking or supposedly saying that he, he never desired sacrifice to the Israelites. In context, he's rebuking them for their hypocrisy because they were thinking that these sacrifices would save them or that these uh, outward, you know, this outward show, these outward ceremonies would justify them and rescue them. And, you know, when inside they were, they were wicked. They were being rebellious and they were breaking all of Yahweh's commandments and they weren't being repentant and they were following other gods and they were, you see that? So, it was their hypocrisy that Yahweh was addressing, rebuking. He's not contradicting himself. Yahweh's not contradicting himself. He's not the, he's not this double-minded demiurge figure who, you know, says one thing and says the opposite the very next, you know, the very passage later, you know. Um, he's not insane, and it's not multiple different entities speaking in these verses, you know, or anything arbitrary or ad hoc like that. You don't have to invoke any of that. You don't have to eisegete, read into the text in order to support your, uh, baseless assumptions. Begging the question, assuming your point to be proved arguing in a circle. So, let's see. You can deduce from these passages, rather, and it, it, it can be consistent. And I'm demonstrating how that, that's the case, how that can be the case. So here's more in my Rotherhams. It says, uh, sin, sin offering, sin bearer. As one of the most striking and significant facts in the language of Leviticus and of the Old Testament generally is that the sin offering and the guilt offering are in Hebrew called simply sin and guilt. Uh, 
the victim being called by the name of the offense which it bears and for which it dies. As this usage could not have been intended to confound moral delinquency or abnormal moral condition with an innocent and unoffending animal, the usage can only be regarded as vividly setting forth the close connection between sin and death, the doom of sin to end in death, the destiny of the sin-bearer to carry the sin unto death and realize its termination in death. The sacrifice thus becomes an impressive object lesson, a dramatic representation of of pathetic moral instructiveness. The victim is put in the offender's place and and is then slain. One sins, another dies. Between these two facts is interposed the symbolical ceremony of the laying on, or more exactly the leaning on, of the hands of the sinner upon the head of the sin-bearer. The sin is thereby represented as transferred from the former to the latter. The sin, not indeed in its moral blameworthiness, but in its legal answerableness. To render such a transference possible, divine sanction is essential. It is chiefly and ultimately against God that sin is committed. His primal law is that the person who sins, the same shall die. Ezekiel, uh, looks like 18.4. And he, Yahweh himself, alone can commute or transfer the penalty, right, out of his sovereign grace. Besides, all life is his gift and care. No animal can be lawfully slain without his permission. Hence, in divinely appointed sacrifice, his permission is seen, a fact formally and solemnly enunciated in Leviticus uh, 17.11. He grants, within certain limits, what he alone could rightfully grant, the substitution of life for life upon the altar of sacrifice. But although this divine sanction is essential to acceptable substitutionary sacrifice, the interest and obligation of the offender must not be overlooked. He has done the wrong, and it is for him to make amends, if he can and if he may. And it is worthy of note that between him and his substitute, a near relation is presupposed or secured. To die for me, the lamb must be, must be mine. Accordingly, the paschal lamb was to be selected and brought to the op- offerer's home, there to be petted and pitied, so as to render the offering of it the offering of his own heart, of himself. Exodus 12, 3-6. In like manner, on the great day of propitiation, when all the sacrifices of the year were summed up and completed, it was from the people that the priest was instructed to accept the sin-bearers which were to be offered in their behalf. Leviticus 16.5 It is, of course, conceivable that the sinner may be unable to provide an acceptable sacrifice, in which case it is possible that God himself may provide the lamb. Genesis 22.8 and indeed a glimmering perception of the possible need of some notable divine provision seems to have prophetically carried away the patriarch Abraham into the bestowal upon Mount Moriah of the name, quote, Yahweh Yireh, or Yahweh will provide, and to have induced others to prolong the anticipation. Oh, hold on. I need to plug in my phone. Okay.
in the saying, quote, in the mountain of Yahweh shall provision be made, end quote. Genesis 22:14. The need of divine sanction to the constitution of efficacious substitution attains its most weighty expression when we read in the prophets, quote, Yahweh caused to light upon him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah, uh, I think, 53, 6. No other... Nope, hold on. No other than he could make that transference to be the suffering servant who he may. In view of the impressive lesson thus afforded and which is so prominent in the book of Leviticus, where the word hatath, for 19 times it means sin, 53 times stands for the sin victim, the translator would fain have followed the severity of the Hebrew and used the one name, quote, sin, throughout. Doubting the intelligibility of such a terminology at present, he has not ventured on that course. He has, however, preferred sin-bearer to sin-offering as penetrating just a little further into the heart of the matter. Sin-bearer, meantime, may aptly remind us not only of Isaiah 53.6, but of 1 Peter 2.24. But if we should ever be able to, quote, homologate the one term sin for hatath throughout the book of Leviticus, we should assuredly have climbed the high level which would conduct us triumphantly into the great Pauline utterance of 2 Corinthians 5.21. The translator is pleased on reviewing the three editions of his New Testament to use that he has hitherto resisted the temptation to substitute sin offering for sin, quote, made him to sin, or made him to be sin, end quote, in that passage. And he traces it to the influence over him of this remarkable usage in Leviticus, quote, sin offering, yes, but what constitutes a sin offering save the imputation of sin? The ancient usage was intensely dramatic. It led the offerer, as he viewed his substitute, to exclaim, There goes, there dies, my sin. There you go. There's the concept of propitiation, substitutionary atonement, penal substitution. All right there. Exposited. Um, I think I will read some more here as well. I'm just looking at something right now. So, I've got something else I want to read. So I have this uh, three-book series called The Origin of Pagan Idolatry ascertained from historical testimony and circumstantial evidence. It's a three-volume set of books by uh, this scholar named George Stanley Faber. Very old series of books uh, from the 1800s. Each book is extremely um, dense, very long, very extremely scholarly. Um, But there's this really interesting part at the end of uh, his part, his first book here that I want to read. It's pertinent to this subject. It says, uh, On the Origin and Purport of Sacrificial Rites. So it goes on. It says, uh, In every quarter of the earth, 
Paganism, both ancient and modern, has never failed to inculcate the necessity of sacrificial rites. This universal accordance, which is almost super, superfluous to attempt formally to prove, can only be satisfactorily accounted for on the principle of the common origination of all the mythological systems of the Gentiles. For the same argument, which has already been so frequently employed, may here again be used with equal advantage and pro propriety. Throughout the whole world, we find a notion prevalent that the gods could only be appeased by bloody sacrifices. Now, this idea is so thoroughly arbitrary, there being no obvious and necessary connection in the way of cause and effect between slaughtering a man or a beast and the recovering of the divine favor by the slaughterer, that its very universality involves the necessity of concluding that all nations have borrowed it from some common source. It is in vain to say that there is nothing so strange, but that an unrestrained superstition might have excogitated it. This solution does by no means meet the difficulty. If sacrifice had been in use only among the inhabitants of a single country or among those of some few neighboring countries who might reasonably be supposed to have much mutual intercourse, no fair objection could be made to the answer. But what we have to account for is the universality of the practice, and such a solution plainly does not account for such a circumstance. I mean, not merely the existence of sacrifice, but its universality. An apparently irrational notion, struck out by a wild fanatic in one country and forthwith adopted by his fellow citizens, for such is the hypothesis requ requisite to the present solution, is yet found to be equally prevalent in all countries. Therefore, if we acquiesce in this solution, we are bound to believe either that all nations, however remote from each other, borrowed from that of the original inventor, or that by a most marvelous subversion of the whole system of calculating chances, a great number of fanatics severally appearing in every country upon the face of the earth without any mutual communication, strangely hit upon the self-same arbitrary and inexplicable mode of propitiating the deity. It is difficult to say which of the two suppositions is the most improbable. The solution, therefore, does not satisfactorily account for the fact of the universality. Nor can the fact, I will be bold to say, be satisfactorily accounted for except by the supposition that no one nation borrowed the right from another nation, but that all alike received it from a common origin of most remote antiquity. Number one, the propriety of such a supposition will be rendered yet more evident when we recollect that sacrificial rites have not only been universal in their reception, but likewise they, that they have been adopted in every nation except one, long prior to the commencement of authentic history. There is no heathen people that can specify the time when it was without sacrifice. All have equally had it from a period which cannot be reached by their genuine records, and tradition alone can be brought forward by the Gentiles to account for its origin. Let us then attend to the testimony of tradition, which in this instance is so remarkably uniform that, even if it stood wholly unsupported by better evidence, it would still be eminently worthy of our notice. Number one, we find then, by the general tradition, traditionary consent of pagan antiquity, that sacrificial rites, 
and the worship of the gods, which ever involved sacrificial rites, are said to have commenced with that primeval character whom the nations venerated as their great universal father, the character who, under whatever name he was adored, is demonstrated by the circumstantial evidence of his legendary history to have been Adam, considered a re- as reappearing in the person of Noah. Thus, one of the eight mystic forms of the Indian Siva, a number which evidently alludes to the Agdawad, conspicuous in both the first two families, is said to be the performer of a sacrifice. Thus, the Egyptian Thoth, or Tot, who is the same as Buddha, or Kadam, is described as the original inventor of sacrificial rites. Thus, the Egyptian Osiris, who is clearly no other than the Greek Dionysus and the Indian Shiva, or Iswara, is celebrated as the person who first instructed mankind in the worship of the gods, with which, as I have just observed, sacrifice was ever inseparably united. Thus, the Etruscan Janus was thought by the Italians to have first taught them to build temples to the gods and and to have instituted the sacred rites with which they were adored. Thus, the Argive Pharonius, who was accounted the first of men and who was made coeval with the flood, is said to have first built a temple and an altar for sacrificial purposes to Juno, Thus, the Chinese Fohi is represented as carefully breeding seven sorts of animals, the number according to which Noah was directed to take the clean animals into the ark for the purpose of sacrificing them to the supreme spirit of heaven and earth. Thus, the Babylonian Zethrus, when he quitted the ark within which he had been preserved, is said to have built an altar and offered sacrifices to the gods. Thus, both the Greek and the Scythic Deucalion is equally described as building an altar and as offering up sacrifices immediately after the deluge. Thus, the British Hu, H-U, who with seven companions sailed in an ark over the interminable ocean is eminently styled the Sacrificer. And thus the Peruvian Manco Copac is supposed to have first reclaimed mankind from a savage life and to have taught them the worship of his father, the sun. The altar on which the primeval sacrifice was offered up has been elevated to the sphere, and the legends which are there attached to it all tend to refer us to the same period for the origin of the rite. On the sphere itself, we behold the fabulous centaur, the reputed son of Kronos, but by Lycophron, rightly identified with Kronos himself, issuing from the ship Argo and bearing on his lance a victim towards the altar for the purpose of sacrificing it. And we are told that on this same altar, Jupiter offered an oblation when going to the War of the Titans, or rather as the scholastic or scoliast on Aratus more accurately gives the tradition, when returning victorious from that war. The Titanic War, however, relates altogether to the deluge, and it is the very same as the War of Typhon, or the ocean, against the hero gods. Consequently, the sacrifice of Jupiter on the altar is no other than the first post-Diluvian sacrifice of Noah. Hence, in allusion to the flood, we are informed that night, whom the Orphic poet identifies with the infernal Venus or the great Archite Mother, 
was the person that placed the altar among the constellations in pity of the calamities inflicted upon men by the tempestuous ocean. Thus universally do the pagans ascribe the origin of a rite which far precedes the records of authentic profane history to the age of the Great Father. But the Great Father is he who is supposed to be manifested anew at the commencement of every similar mundane system. Now we know that only two such systems have existed, which, from many points of resemblance between their respective commencements, have occasioned the philosophical fable of an endless succession of perfectly similar worlds. Which I actually believe, by the way, so I disagree with Amir. Therefore the pagans, by ascribing the origin of sacrifice to the age of the great transmigrating father, do in effect deduce from it from or deduce it from the two primeval sacrifices which were offered up, the one at the beginning of the antediluvian world and the other at that of the postdiluvian. Such being their traditional account of the origin of sacrifice, if it be well founded, all nations must obviously have borrowed the right from a common source, and since the very circumstance of the universality of sacrifice can only be accounted for in some such manner as the traditional account has specified, the presumption, even if we had no better evidence, would be that the account itself, however perverted to serve the purposes of idolatry, is in the main founded on truth. All right, hold on, guys. Guys, i got to go do something. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Let's see. So, number two, it says, But we have better evidence, even the evidence of inspiration itself, for it will be found that the genuine records of the only nation whose historical documents reach as high as the commencement of sacrifice give substantially the same account of its origin as the coincident traditions of the pagans. We are informed by Moses that immediately after the deluge, Noah, the first man of the new world, the transmigrating great father of Gentile theology, built an altar and offered up a propitiatory sacrifice upon it. And we are further taught that the wrath of God was appeased by it, and that he solemnly promised never more to bring upon the earth a flood of waters. From the action of Noah, then, the practice must have been derived to all his posterity through each of his three sons, and when the dispersion from Babel took place, it would be carried as from a common center to every quarter of the earth by the various leaders of those colonies, which in time became nations. But even this is insufficient to account quite satisfactorily for its continued prevalence though it decidedly establishes the truth of Gentile tradition respecting the post-Diluvian part of its origin. A strong belief of the, obli of the obligation and necessity of sacrifice must have been already predominant in the minds of the Noetic family. Otherwise, it does not appear why their descendants should have argued its general necessity from its particular 
propriety in the case of the second great father of mankind. We must ascend, therefore, still higher, as indeed we are compelled to do by the remarkable distinction which we find subsisting in the time of Noah between ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean and unclean animals, a distinction which relates immediately to their use or non-use in sacrifice, and which consequently proves that sacrifice was an antediluvian, no less than a post-diluvian institution. With this necessary conclusion, the sacred history perfectly agrees. The first observance of the rite, which has been positively recorded, occurs in the history of Cain and Abel, but it is not difficult to collect that the institution of it must have been prior to the sacrifices of the two brethren. We may observe that the account of those sacrifices is detailed in a familiar manner, which by no means resembles the narrative of an entirely novel transaction. And in the course of it, Moses employs an expression which intimates that, so far from being the first that were offered up, they were no more than the ordinary oblations which took place at regularly stated periods. In our translation, it is said that Cain and Abel brought their offer offerings in process of time, but the phrase thus rendered generally ought to have been translated as Kennecott, supported by Phagius, has shown, at the end of the days or at the close of the appointed season. The sacrifices therefore of the brethren, instead of being the first in the antediluvian world, were but part of a regular series which is which had commenced from a yet prior era. If then we are to ascend still higher than the days of Cain and Abel, we are inevitably brought to some part of the antecedent life of Adam and Eve. Now there is not the slightest hint given that the ordinance commenced during the period that our first parents dwelt in paradise but there is a circumstance mentioned immediately after the account given of the fall, which warrants our determining that epoch to have witnessed the original institution of sacrifice. We read that God made coats of skins for Adam and his wife, with which he clothed them, after they had been convicted of disobedience, and after the promise of a Redeemer and notwithstanding, had notwithstanding been made to them. The question then is, Whence were these skins procured or procured? They could not have been the skins of animals which had died without violence, because as yet death was not in the world. Neither could they have been skins of animals or of animals slain for the purpose of food, because our primeval ancestors were not carnivorous. The original grant of diet, which we have no reason to suppose them to have transgressed, extended only to the productions of the earth. The use of animal food was permitted for the first time after the deluge. I see not, therefore, how we can account for their appearance precisely at this time, except by supposing them to be the skins of animals slain for the purpose of sacrifice, which was then originally instituted. But if this were the case, then agreeably to the unvarying traditions of the Gentiles, the first sacrifice both of the old and of the new world was equally offered up by the compound personage, whom they believed successively to appear by transmigration at the commencement of every mundane system and to perform anew each action which he had already performed. It is not unworthy of observation that the Indian Shiva, one of whose forms is that of the offerer up of a sacrifice, is frequently represented, perhaps in allusion to the mode in which Adam was clothed by the deity as clad in the skin of a beast, 
and that the votaries of Bacchus, during the celebration of his frantic orgies, were arrayed in the skins of fawns. Shiva, at least, and Bacchus were equally the great transmigrating father, with whom the rite of sacrifice commenced at the opening of every new world. Such, then, equally according to scripture and pagan tradition, was the double origin of sacrifice, and the circumstance of an animal oblation having been offered up nearly at the beginning both of the antediluvian and the postdiluvian world, and in each instance by him who was venerated as the great universal father, was one of the many parallel circumstances at the opening of each world, which induced the doctrine of an endless succession of similar mundane systems, constantly divided from one another by the immediate period of a general deluge. We may now proceed to consider the purport of the rite. So it says number two. Since the rite itself is found to be equally prevalent in the religion of the ancient patriarchs and that of the Israelites as ordained by the hand of Moses, and in the corrupt system of idolatry which nearly overspread the whole face of the earth, it appears more reasonable to inquire what notions were entertained of its purport by those who received it than to start a theory of our own devised only to buttress a fabric of preconceived opinions. Number one, in pursuing this inquiry, I shall begin with the Gentiles, but I must not omit previously to observe that so thoroughly has the subject been exhausted and so very ably has it been treated by an excellent modern writer that, with the exception of a small portion of additional matter, I have little more to do than to avail myself of his learning and industry. Some have contended that sacrifices ought to be considered only in the light of gifts with which a suppliant inferior approaches his acknowledged superior, allowing for a moment that to a certain extent they may be thus estimated, still we must obviously inquire with what sentiments the heathens offered these supposed gifts to their deities. Now, their whole sacrificial phraseology is built upon the predominant idea that it was necessary to propitiate the gods, and that such propitiation was best effected by shedding the blood of a devoted victim. Thus we read of appeasing the wrath of the deities with bulls and with lambs, with sprinklings and with oblations, with blood and with slaughter. Thus also we are told that human sacrifices were offered up for the express purpose of obtaining pardon from the gods, and that the worshippers hope to ensure their peace with heaven by shedding the blood of such victims. And thus we meet with the phrase of ex expiating a crime, and sometimes find the analogous idea that there might be wickedness of so black a dye as to be utterly incapable of any expiation. Agreeable to the received phraseology was the uniformly adopted practice as the prevailing notion was that without the effusion of blood, the gods could not or would not forgive the offenses of men, so there perhaps has been no people upon the face of the earth which has not at one period or another been addicted to sacrifices, both human and bestial, sacrifices expressly offered up for the purpose of propitiating the angry deities. Animal oblations have never been discontinued by any pagan nation, so long as it retained the profession of paganism. 
And though human victims more or less cease to be slaughtered in polished and civilized communities, yet perhaps in no idolatrous region were the bloody rites, which required such sacrifices, wholly unknown. The Ethiopians, the Phoenicians, the Scythians, the Celts, the Egyptians, the Chinese, the Persians, the Hindus, the Greeks, the Latins, the Carthaginians, the Canaanites, the Arabians, the Cretans, the Cyprians, the Rhodians, the Africans, the Mexicans, the Peruvians, and the recently discovered islanders of the great Pacific Ocean. All these either are or have been polluted with the abomination of human sacrifice, polluted with it from an express persuasion that the anger of the gods might thus be averted from their worshippers, and that their favor might thus be most effectually procured. If then we are at all... If then we at all allow that the sacrifices of the pagans ought to be considered in the light of gifts, we must likewise allow that they were gifts made under the impression of fear, that they were gifts which presupposed the wrath of the gods, that they were gifts which propitiated the indignation of the offended deities only by the destruction of the offered victim. And this will further compel us to allow that for some reason or other, Man was supposed by the Gentiles to be at enmity with the, the gods, and that the gods themselves were thought to be so much delighted with the shedding of blood, either human or bestial, as freely to remit their indignation against man when thus propitiated. How they came to entertain such opinions, and what led them to con connect together in the way of cause and effect, the slaughter of an unoffending victim and the propitiation of their gods, things which in themselves have no obvious or natural connection, how such notions as these originated is another question. I am at present simply concerned with the matter of fact. The pagans then offered up their sacrifices whether we choose to call them gifts or not, under the manifest impression that their gods required propitiation, and they might be propitiated by the shedding of blood, we have next to learn in what precise manner they believe the propitiation to be effected and the wrath of the deities averted. Now this manner, if we may argue from the avowed intention of some sacrifices to the implied intention of others, which bear a perfect outward resemblance to them, was as follows. The wrath of the gods and the consequent necessity of propitiation being assumed as indisputable circumstances, the animal or person sacrificed was devoted in the stead of the sacrificer, and the indignation which would otherwise have descended upon the sacrificer, now descending upon the substituted victim, was thought to be appeased and entirely turned away from the former by the death and sufferings of the latter. So you got penal substitution there. In short, the victim was considered not so much in the light of a gift as of a proxy. He was supposed to stand in the place of the offerer and to endure in his room those penalties which he must otherwise have endured. Its pains by which the deity was propitiated were deemed purely and properly vicarious. That such was the leading idea of the pagans with respect to sacrifice might also almost be inferred from their ordinary phraseology, which has already been noted. For, though arguing from the ways of men with each other, a simple gift might not unnaturally be deemed efficacious to turn away wrath. 
It is hard to say why the utter destruction of that gift, even in the very act of presenting it, should be thought more likely to propitiate the anger of the deity than its careful preservation, unless it was additionally supposed that his anger spent itself upon the slaughtered victim rather than upon the trembling sacrificer. But we are not left to draw inferences, the propriety or at least the certainty of which might be disputed. There are on record positive declarations which can neither be misunderstood nor explained away. And those declarations are not confined to a single country. We alike meet with them in various regions the most widely separated from each other. The opinion of the Druids respecting the efficacy of human sacrifice was built entirely, as we learn from Caesar, on their supposed vicariousness. Unless the life of man were given in exchange for the forfeited life of man, they believed that the deity of the immortal gods could not otherwise be appeased. Such also was the doctrine of the Gothic or Scythic Scandinavians. Having laid it down as a principle that the effusion of the blood of animals appeased the anger of the gods and that their justice turned aside upon the victims those strokes which were destined for men, they extended the same theory to the shedding of human blood. In honor of the mystical number three, a number deemed peculiarly dear to heaven as being the number of the Indo-Scythic Trimurti, or great triplicated deity, every ninth month witnessed the groans and dying struggles of nine unfortunate victims. The fatal blow having been struck, the lifeless bodies were consumed in the sacred fire which was kept continually burning, while the blood was sprinkled partly upon the surrounding multitude, partly upon the trees of the hallowed grove, and partly upon the images of the gods. Such likewise was the opinion of the Egyptians in the days of Herodotus. Having led to the altar the animal destined and marked for the purpose, they kindled a fire. A libation of wine was then poured upon the altar, the god was solemnly invoked, and the victim was killed. Afterwards they cut off his head and took the skin from the carcass, but upon the head they heaped many imprecations. Such as had a marketplace at hand carried it there and sold it to the Greek traders. If they had not this opportunity of disposing of it, they threw it into the river. The mode in which they imprecated the head was by wishing that whatever evil menaced either the sacrificers in particular or Egypt in general, it might fall upon that head. This ceremony respecting the head of the slaughtered animal and this custom of pouring a libation of wine upon the altar was indiscriminately observed by all the Egyptians, in consequence of which none of them would, on any account, eat of the head of a beast, doubtless from a persuasion that all the evils which would have fallen upon themselves were transferred to the head of their substitute, the offered victim. All right, I'll be right back again.
All right. So such again was palpably the sentiment of the Athenians and the Massilians in their remarkable annual sacrifice of a man for the welfare of the state. They loaded him with the most dreadful curses. They prayed that the wrath of the gods might fall upon his devoted head and thus be diverted from the rest of the citizens. And they solemnly called upon him to become their ransom, their salvation, and their redemption, life for life and body for body. After this preliminary ceremony, they cast him into the sea as a, as a offering to Neptune. An exactly similar opinion prevailed among the Chinese, as they, as may be collected from a circumstance recorded in the history of their emperor, Qing Tang. This country was visited by a drought for the space of seven successive years, and to avert the calamity, the prayers and subsequent sacrifice of a man were said to be required by heaven. On this, the aged monarch offered himself as a victim, and he is described as supplicating the deity that his life might be accepted as an atonement for the sins of his people, and that the divine wrath might pass by them and descend upon his devoted head. The will, however, is said to have been accepted for the deed, and the life of the prince was not required, yet both the demand and the offer sufficiently show that the essence of sacrifice was believed to be its vicariousness. Such also must have been the opinion of the Phoenicians, as we may collect both from the story of their god Kronos, or Ill, and from the pre, pre preferatory remarks with which that story is introduced. It seems very evidently to have been founded in the first instance on the intended sacrifice of Isaac, but the whole narrative, as given by Eusebius, proves it to have been an ex exemplification of the doctrine of vicariousness. We are told by this author, speaking of the Phoenicians, that it, that it was an established custom among the ancients in any calamitous or dangerous emergency for the rulers of the state to offer up, in the prevention of the general ruin, the best beloved of their children as a ransom paid to the avenging demons. We are further told that they who were thus devoted were devoted mystically, and we are finally presented with an instance of this sacrificial redemption, the one being a ransom for the many in the case of Ill or Kronos, who, when the nation was endangered by a perilous war, dressed up his son in the emblems of royalty and offered him as a victim on an altar specially prepared for that purpose. Here the mystic sacrifice of the son was plainly designed to avert the wrath of the gods from the nation at large and to transfer it to the head of the substituted victim, who by suffering in his own person what would otherwise have fallen upon the people became the price of their redemption from punishment. There is a closely parallel case re recorded in Scripture, which proves that a similar notion must have been familiar to the Moabites. When the king of that nation was endangered by the successful progress of the Israelites, he devoted his eldest son as a burnt offering, hoping that the wrath of the gods might descend upon the head of the substituted victim rather than upon himself and his people. You can see that in 2 Kings 3.27. The same idea must also have been prevailed in Peru, for to say nothing of the 200 children who were annually, annually sacrificed for the health of the Yinka, we are informed by Acosta 
that in cases of sickness, it was usual for a Peruvian to offer up, up his son to Viracocha, beseeching him to spare his life and to be satisfied with the blood of his child. We may equally trace it in the sentiment which caused the Athenian Codrus, the Theban Menechius, and the Roman De Deci to devote themselves to the infernal gods for the redemption of their respective countries. And we may finally observe it exemplified in the most decisive terms by the remarkable phraseology which pervades the sanguinary chapter of the Hindu Kalika Puran. The sacrificer of a human victim is directed to address him previous to his slaughter in the following words, quote, O best of men, O most auspicious, O thou who art an assemblage of all, all the deities and most exquisite, bestow thy protection on me, save me, thy devoted, save my sons, my cattle and kindred. Preserve the state, the ministers belonging to it, and all friends, and as death is unavoidable, part with thy life, doing an act of benevolence. Bestow upon me, O most auspicious, the bliss which is obtained by the most austere devotion, by acts of charity, and by performance of religious ceremonies, and at the same time, O most excellent, attain supreme bliss thyself. May thy auspices, O most auspicious, keep me secure from rakshasas, pissacos, terrors, serpents, bad princes, enemies, and the other evils, and death being inevitable, charm Bhagavati in thy last moments by copious streams of blood spouting from the arteries of thy fleshly neck. End quote. In short, the theory of the vicariousness of sacrifices by various ancient writers so explicitly maintained that there cannot be a doubt of such being the received doctrine of the pagans. The word peripsima, which was used to describe the nature of the annual human sacrifice of the Athenians that I have already noticed, is defined by Hesychius as meaning life for life. The parallel term piaculum is used by Plotus in such a manner as necessarily to involve the idea of vicarious suffering. Ovid describes the purport and intention of a sacrifice by intimating that the heart of the victim was hoped to serve as a substitute for the heart of the offerer, its fibers for his fibers, its life for his life. And Pophyri asserts it to have been the general belief and tradition deduced from the mythologic or fabulous ages that animal sacrifices were resorted to in such cases as required life for life. A similar idea pervades every part of the Levitical institutions. This is not a place to discuss the topic at large, and indeed such a discussion is rendered plainly superfluous by the labors of the author, to whom I have already acknowledged my obligations. I shall content myself, therefore, with adducing a single proof that the doctrine of vicariousness was no less decidedly recognized by the law of Moses than in the theory of the pagan sacrificers. 
In the case of the scapegoat, the transfer of the iniquities of the whole congregation to the substituted animal is expressly de- declared to have been represented by the skinical action section or the skinical action of the high priest laying them, as it were, upon its head, so that when the ceremony of imposition of hands had been duly performed, the goat was considered as bearing upon him all the transgressions of the Israelites. Here, then, we have the right of the priest's imposition of hands upon the head of an animal authoritatively authoritatively explained to denote the transfer of sins from the people to their substitute, Consequently, when we find this ceremony used in sacrifice, we can be at no loss to understand its import. Now, to omit other instances, we are told in the the description of the sacrifice offered by Hezekiah that the object of it was to make atonement for all Israel, and that the mode of offering it was by the imposition of hands previous to the slaughter of the animals which were devoted as a sin offering. Such being the formula, there is no room for mistaking the purport of the whole ceremony. The sacrifice itself was expiatory or piacular, for, agreeably to the general declaration of the Apostle that without shedding of blood there was no remission of sins, we are informed that it was a sin offering, and that the design of it was to make atonement for the people. And the specific manner of its operation was decidedly according to the principles of vicariousness, for the imposition of hands forms a part of the ceremony, and we are positively told that such imposition represented the transfer of sin from the Israelites to the substituted animal. In short, the whole rite, with its attendant ceremonial, is palpably analogous to those peculiar sacrifices of the Egyptians and Athenians, which have already been noticed. The sins of the community were alike, in each case, supposed to be transferred to the appointed victim, and that victim, thus bearing the iniquities of others, was devoted to death in the room of those whom it represented. 3. Such, accordingly, is the light in which the ordinance of sacrifice has justly been understood by the Israelites themselves. Aber Benel, in the introduction to his commentary on Leviticus, represents the ceremony of imposition of hands upon the head of the victim as a symbolical translation of the sins of the offender upon the head of the sacrifice. And agreeably to this theory was the ordinary practice of his countrymen. When a person presented his sacrifice, he was directed to say, O God, I have sinned, I have done perversely. I have trespassed before thee, and have done so-and-so. Lo, now I repent, and I am truly sorry for my misdeeds. Let this victim be my expiation. The last words were accompanied by the action of laying hands on the head of the victim, and they were considered by the Jews to be equivalent to this. Let the evils which injustice should have fallen on my head light upon the head of this victim. Thus Baal Aruk says that, Wherever the expression, let me be another's expiation, is used, it is the same as if it had been said, let me be put in his room, that I may bear his guilt. And this again is equivalent to saying, let this act, whereby I take on me his transgression, obtain for him his pardon. Thus also Solomon Jarkey says, let us be your expiation, signifies, let us be put in your place that the evil which should have fallen upon you may all light on us. 
And in the same manner, the formula is explained by Obadiah de, de Bartonora and the other learned Jews. Similar to this is the mode in which the burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin are understood by the rabbinical writers. Thus, Nachmanides remarks that it was right that the offerer's own blood should be shed and his body burnt, but that the Creator, in his mercy, hath accepted this victim from him as a vicarious substitute and an atonement, that its blood should be poured out instead of his blood, and its life stand in place of his life. Thus also Isaac ben Arama observes that the offender, when he beholds the victim on account of his sin, slain, skinned, cut in pieces, and burnt with fire upon the altar, should reflect that thus he must also have been treated, had not God in his clemency accepted this expiation for his life. Thus again, David de Pomia pronounces the victim to be the vicarious substitute for the offerer. And thus Isaac Abarbanel affirms that the offerer deserved that his blood should be poured out and his body burnt for his sins, but that God in his clemency accepted from him the victim as his vicarious substitute and expiation, whose blood was poured out in place of his blood and whose life was given in lieu of his life. To these testimonies may properly be subjoined the remarkable account of the expiatory sacrifice of a cock by the modern Jews, as detailed by Buxdorf. Each father of a family begins the ceremony by stepping forth into the midst of the assembly with a cock in his hands, and by repeating certain appropriate texts from Scripture. Then he thrice strikes the cock against his head, and at each blow exclaims, May this cock be accepted in exchange for me. May he succeed to my place. May he be an expiation for me. On this cock death shall be afflicted, but to me and to all Israel there shall be a fortunate life. Amen. Afterwards, placing his hands upon the victim, he slays him. Then drawing the skin tied around the neck, he mentally confesses that he himself was worthy of strangulation, but that he substituted and offered the cock in his own room. Next, he cuts its throat with a knife, silently reflecting that he was thus worthy of being slain with the sword. Next, he violently dashes the carcass on the ground to denote that he was worthy of being stoned to death. Lastly, he roasts it with fire to intimate that he deserved the punishment of burning. And thus, by these several actions, the idea was conveyed that the cock underwent four sorts of death in the place of the Jews, being accepted as the representative and substitute. Number four, as the very same sentiments respecting the design of sacrifice prevailed both among the Israelites and the pagans, and as the origin of the rite itself may clearly be traced even to the first age of the world, it seems inevitably to follow that a similar opinion of its purport must have been entertained by the early patriarchs. For since the rite, whether adopted by the Gentiles or the Israelites, was borrowed from a common source, and since they both attributed precisely the same efficacy to it, it is incredible that their patriarchal predecessors, predecessors should yet have thought quite different, differently on the subject. 
With this conclusion, the history of the first recorded sacrifice as illustrated by the inspired author of the epistle to the Hebrews will be found exactly to agree. Number one. In the traditions of the Gentiles, confirmed by the testimony of Holy Writ itself, we have seen that the origin of the rite is to be deduced from the two successive great fathers, Adam and Noah, each of whom was the earliest sacrificer in his own peculiar world. But though such was its origin and practice, we cannot reasonably stop here and pronounce it to be a mere human institution, which was first excogited by Adam and afterwards revived by Noah. The sacrifice of Abel, when viewed in all its bearings, necessarily, so far as I can judge, presupposes the divine institution of the rite. Why should the, that righteous man have imagined that he could please the deity by slaying a firstling lamb and by burning it upon an altar? What connection is there between the means and the end? Abel could not have but known that God, as a merciful God, took no pleasure in the sufferings of the lamb. How, then, are we to account for his attempting to please such a God by what abstractly is an act of cruelty? Would any man under his circumstances, wholly unauthorized by the deity and acting solely according to the dictates of his own imagination, have ever attempted in so unlikely and unpromising a manner to accomplish his purpose? Had he received no previous intimation to the contrary, might he not have naturally concluded that such an act, instead of being pleasing, would be highly offensive to God? How then came he to venture upon the commission of an act, in itself so singular and so little likely to be grateful to his beneficent creator? Are we not almost compelled to suppose that his oblation was not an unauthorized act of will-worship, but that he had previously been taught, and consequently that he was fully assured that on some account or, or other the act would please God? Granting, however, what scarcely can be granted consistently with reason and probability that the sacrifice of Abel was no better than an unauthorized act of will worship, and that most unaccountably he stumbled upon a mode of pleasing God, which abstractly he might have guessed to be much more likely to displease him, granting all this, how are we to account for the circumstance that an act which, when thus considered, was manifestly an act of rash and unwarrantable presumption, should after all most strangely prove acceptable to the deity. We can only account for it by the supposition that one of the most decided acts of will-worship that can well be imagined might yet prove acceptable to God, and might not only prove acceptable to him in a single instance, but that it might even be afterwards adopted by him into the ritual which he appointed for his chosen people. Such a supposition, however, directly contradicts the positive declaration of Christ that it is in vain to worship God by teaching for doctrines the mere unauthorized commands of erring men. Hence it is evident that if the sacrifice of Abel had been an act of will-worship, it could not, for that very reason, have been pleasing to God. But it was pleasing to God, therefore it could not have been an act of will-worship. Consequently, since it was not an act of will-worship, it must have been of divine institution. Section 
Sacrifice being thus, in the first instance, a divine ordinance, we have to inquire why the oblation of Abel was acceptable and the oblation of Cain not acceptable to God, since they both equally sacrificed. This inquiry will serve to establish the opinion, which has already been advanced, that precisely the same sentiments respecting the nature and efficacy of sacrifice were entertained both by the early patriarchs, the Gentiles, and the Israelites. In other words, that they all equally held the doctrine of vicarious expiation. But, if this doctrine were held from the beginning, then the conclusion seems to be inevitable, that since sacrifice itself was a divine institution, the accompanying and explanatory doctrine was a divine revelation. That is to say, the Almighty was pleased to declare that on some account or other man stood in need of vicarious expiation to reconcile him to his Maker. Number two, it is an established maxim of Scripture by which alone we are taught the will of God that without shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22 Now the sacrifice of Abel consisted of the firstlings of his flock, while the sacrifice of Cain was composed of the produce of the earth. And we are told that the former was accepted, but that the latter was rejected. This different fate of the two oblations is best explained by the grand sacrificial maxim. The offering of Abel was accepted because blood was shed, and because expiation was thus made by a transfer of the sins of the sacrificer to the victim agreeably to the tenor of the divine institution. The offering of Cain was not accepted because blood was not shed, because no vicarious expiation was made and because the offering itself not being agreeable to the, to the divine institution was in reality a mere act of will-worship. Yes, if God wants to require blood and death and the killing of his own creatures, which he created in order to appease his system of justice and his standard of justice, then he's perfectly justified in doing that. Okay? <laughs> Because he is the standard, right? He's the standard of justice. All justice can only be measured against his standard. So he's not he's not a cupcake and he's not a bleeding heart liberal, okay? So wipe those thoughts from your mind in order to understand this. The righteousness of Abel, in short, consisted in a steady adherence to the precise mode of sacrifice as it had been first appointed immediately after the fall, and in a firm belief in the accompanying explanatory revelation without any presumptuous questioning of the fitness of such an ordinance. The essential guilt of Cain consisted in a daring departure both from the form of the divine institution and from the doctrine expressively shadowed out by that, that form. Like not a few in modern days, he could discern no propriety in connecting the forgiveness of sins with the effusion of blood. He argued, he disbelieved, and he disobeyed. He attempted to convert an expiatory sacrifice into one that was purely Eucharistic, or perhaps he reasoned that the wrath of God, granting that man was not altogether immaculate, might just as well be appeased by the burning of vegetables as by the burning of a slaughtered lamb. 
His offering accordingly, being a palpable act of daring will-worship, tinged largely with a spirit of unsubmissive infidelity, was rejected. But God nevertheless condescended both to point out the ground of its rejection and to lead him to what alone could be deemed a proper sacrifice. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? If thou doest not well, a sin offering coucheth at the door. That is to say, if thou canst lay claim to perfect and undeviating innocence, thou shalt surely be accepted on the score of thy own righteousness. For in that case, no propitiatory sacrifice is necessary. But if thy conscience accuse thee of much evil, as it certainly must do, a remedy is still provided. Thou must bring an offering for thine iniquity to appease my wrath, but it must be such an offering as I have myself appointed. Thy bloodless vegetable sacrifice I cannot accept. Bring, like thy brother, a firstling lamb to make expiation for thine offenses, agreeably to the right, which I instituted after the transgression of thy parents, and it will be, and it will in no wise be refuted, refused. Lo, the victim is ready, an animal, proper to be a sin offering, even now coucheth at the door. Thy brother's sacrifice was accepted, because it was the oblation of such an animal. Imitate his example, seek not to be wiser than thy maker, and then thy sacrifice shall not be rejected with disdain. This is the natural and consistent mode of understanding the relation of Moses when a phrase ill-rendered in our common English version, quote, sin lieth at the door, end quote, is more intelligibly translated as it certainly ought to be translated, quote, a sin offering coucheth at the door, end quote. And it is both confirmed by a brief observation of St. Paul and receives from it additional illustration. By faith, says he, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Hebrews 11.6 What constituted the acceptableness of one sacrifice then and the unacceptableness of the other was faith and want of faith. And the faith of Abel was of such a description as led him to devote a more excellent, or rather, as the original word properly denotes, a more full or more ample sacrifice than his brother. Now faith in general must have some definite object proposed to it, and faith as exemplified in any particular instance must be so understood as not to contradict the obvious context of the instance so adduced. If, then, the offering of Abel were merely the invention of unauthorized will-worship, it is difficult to say wherein his faith consisted, because in the language of Scripture, faith has always relation to some revealed communication of God. And if, on the other hand, the modes of sacrifice adopted by each brother had been equally of divine primeval institution, it is no less hard to determine why Abel should have should be said to have had faith, and Cain, by necessary implication, not to have had faith, because the very act of offering involves a persuasion that the oblation would be accepted. Had not Cain believed in a general way that his sacrifice would be as grateful to God's, God as Abel's, he would plainly not have offered it at all, for the mere circumstance of offering it necessarily implies this sort of belief. Of such faith, then, whether well or ill-founded, Cain possessed as large a share as Abel. 
Consequently, this mere general per, general persuasion cannot be the distinctive faith intended by the apostle, because that was a faith which Abel had and which Cain had not. Of what nature then was the faith of Abel, which is attributed to him? Hold on. To him by St. Paul. We find it distinguished by two characteristics. It induced him to offer to God a more full or more ample sacrifice than Cain, and it was analogous, as appears from the general context, to the faith of all the other ancient patriarchs. With regard to the first, since the sacrifice of Abel was more full than that of Cain, it must have comprehended something which the other did not comprehend. But the precise point wherein they differed was this. In the sacrifice of Abel, the blood of a victim was shed. In the sacrifice of Cain, no blood was shed. Consequently, the effusion of blood, being the precise thing which the one comprehended and which the other did not comprehend, must have been that which made the one sacrifice more full or more ample than the other. Now it was by faith that Abel offered this more full sacrifice than that of Cain. The faith, therefore, of Abel must have been displayed in the, the, the precise point of shedding the blood of a victim, because in this point only was his sacrifice more full than that of his brother. With regard to the second characteristic, the faith of Abel is spoken of as being analogous to the faith of all the other patriarchs. But their faith, as celebrated by the Apostle, is clearly a prospective faith in Christ, who in due season should redeem mankind by his one oblation of himself once offered. The faith, therefore, of Abel was a prospective faith in the sacrifice of the Messiah. Thus it appears that the faith of Abel was displayed at once in shedding the blood of an expiatory victim and in relying upon the efficacy of the yet future expiatory sacrifice of Christ. When these two particulars are viewed, thus palpably in immediate connection with each other, I see not what inference we can draw from them except this, that the bloody sacrifice of Abel's victim and the bloody sacrifice of Christ had a common end, that as the sacrifice of Abel's victim was expiatory, a conclusion to which we had previously been brought, the sacrifice of Christ was likewise expiatory, and that as the faith of Abel was both specially displayed and shedding the blood of his victim and was likewise exercised on the sufferings of the future Redeemer, the slaughter of the victim and the death of Christ stood in some sort of mutual relation. So, let's see if I want to continue reading here. Yeah, I'll keep reading a little bit more. So, three, such a conclusion as this being inevitably drawn, so far as I can judge from the language of the Apostle considered as explanatory of the narrative of Moses... We are next led to inquire into the nature of that mutual relation which subsists between the two piacular sacrifices of Abel's victim and the promised Messiah. 
Now, reason itself may teach us, independent of revelation, that the sins of man cannot really be transferred to an animal victim, and that the slaughter of an unintelligent beast can possess no proper inherent efficacy towards the expiating of transgression. But on this point, revelation is not silent, either under the law or under the gospel. The sacrifices of animals, when rested on as intrinsically peacular, are declared to be vain and abominable. And we are expressly assured that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Isaiah chapter 1, 11, 12, 13, and Hebrews 10, 4. Yet, notwithstanding these assertions, we are taught, even in Scripture itself, that expiation was the end of animal sacrifices, and we know that such a belief prevailed alike among the Gentiles, the Israelites, and the ancient patriarchs. This being the case, since animal sacrifices are not intrinsically peacular, since they were nevertheless ordained by God from the beginning, since a peacular virtue has in all ages and countries been attributed to them, and since the opinion has been sanctioned by the voice of revelation itself, we can only conclude, to avoid a palpable contradiction, that their peacular efficacy was not real, but figurative, that they were expiatory solely as shadowing out a proper expiation, and that since the bloody sacrifice of an animal and the predicted Messiah stood, as we collect from the Apostle, immediately associated in the faith of Abel, the sacrifice of that animal, and thence all other sacrifices, ought to be deemed what divines call typical of the sacrifice of Christ, or a type, or typological. Such, in fact, is the reasoning, and such the conclusion of St. Paul and his epistle to the Hebrews, and the result of the whole investigation will be that the widely prevailing notion of the expiatory virtue of sacrifice originated from the circumstance of the rite, having been first ordained by God to prefigure the mode and intent of the mysterious peacular sacrifice of the Redeemer. All right. I think I'm going to end it here, guys. I think... uh all I want to read of that. So thanks for listening. I hope you found this somewhat interesting or enlightening. And uh, I will talk to you guys later. All right. Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.